When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. If you listen to the Bird Shop Podcast, then you know that I love my hunting vests from Final Rise. And right now, for a limited time, you can use the promo code FR24 to save 10% on a vest of your own and everything else at FinalRise.com. Choose from their selection of upland bird hunting vests, various color patterns and loadouts. Don't forget about those turkey hunting vests as well. Spring is right around the corner. With a full lineup of accessories, apparel, and related gear, Final Rise is sure to have something you'll need for your adventures this year. Once again, don't miss this one-time annual sale running through March 17th. Head over to FinalRise.com and use the promo code FR24. That's promo code FR24 at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking with the author of A Millionaire's Dream, a novel by Brett Wanaka. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 229. All right, welcome to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We're going to talk to Brett Wanicott, author of A Millionaire's Dream and a passionate upland bird hunter in just a couple of minutes. But I will start with thanking Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, as I always do. We got a handful of new signups last week, and I thank all of you out there making those voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these episodes and conversations coming your way. Those patrons are eligible for giveaways, occasional bonus content, and we send everybody some canned coolers and stickers as a little thank you as well. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right. Well, I don't have much else to share with you on today's intro, but I will mention this. If you are listening to this on release day, July 14th, it just so happens to be my dad's birthday. And early in my conversation with Brett, we started talking about fishing a little bit, which brought to mind some memories of going up to Canada on annual fishing trips with my dad and my brother. And certainly, my dad is largely responsible for fueling my love of the outdoors early on. Lots of great memories hunting and fishing with him over the years. And he's certainly partly to blame for me eventually deciding to host and produce this podcast that y'all are listening to. So, just in case he happens to be listening, Thanks, Dad. Happy birthday, and I love you, buddy. All right, let's get into our conversation with Brett Wanicott today, author of A Millionaire's Dream, 
book that I finished earlier this week. If you are interested in bird dogs and bird hunting, which is everybody listening, you should definitely check out A Millionaire's Dream. It's available on Amazon. You can buy it from his website. I read it on my Kindle. Great summer reading. It's got me thinking even more about fall at this point. A little bit of everything in this story. There's highs, there's lows, there's heartbreak, there's laughs. Just a fantastic story with some great characters and very present hunting, bird dog, and field trialing themes. So if you have not read this book yet, it's absolutely worth checking it out. And I think you should all go grab a copy and support Brett's work and hopefully fuel him into completing his follow-up to A Millionaire's Dream, which he is already working on. You'll hear more about it from Brett on today's show, along with some other great topics, including English setters, shotguns, new and old, and more. So without further ado, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Brett Wanicott. Well, welcome to the Birdshot Podcast, Brett. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh man, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were you were just commenting on the reloader position behind me, the uh, mech. Uh, what do I have? I have a Size Master twenty eight gauge reloader. Do you do any reloading, or what have you have oh. you dabbled in that at all? Oh yeah, I've been. I think at my for my twelfth birthday, I got a reloader. So it's an old Pacific Hornady reloader. Oh wow! So I've been reloading since I was a little kid. I've been, and I've yeah, I've been loading sixteen gauge and twelve gauge for the season. I've been loading some low pressure twelve gauge stuff. So okay kind of fun yeah yeah so that uh, that was gonna be my next question do you reload for for economics in target shooting or do you load some of your own hunting loads and it sounds like uh definitely the latter at least yeah i load stuff i can't get you know i i usually i'd rather i just assume buy it i mean you know time in there spent on the reloader isn't a bad isn't bad time but it could be spent doing something else so yeah yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and that's one of the I've I've mentioned it here on the podcast a little bit. One of the reasons I wanted to get into it was just to kind of just have some fun with it, I guess. And and the 28 gauge is one of those that you can load economically and save some money on. So that's was I guess maybe part of my justification for it, but also wanting to load some stuff for hunting and it's just a little bit easier to to do some of that specialty loading and and customization that you can't necessarily find on on the shelf. Well, and in the process, you learn a whole bunch too, because you right. have a tendency to go out and pattern those loads. And, and so right. you learn more about patterning and, and people that reload tend to, to be a little bit more fanatical about what they shoot, I think. So yeah, um, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of that part of that evolution, knowing your gear and kind of what you're, what you're, what you're doing, what you're putting out there for sure. 100%. Well, Brett, you are joining us today from Utah, which is interesting because I, I've been, you know, reading is one of those things. I love reading and it does come and go. I mean, I, there are just certain times in my life where I, I find other distractions and, and I'm not uh, not reading as much as I should. But lately I have been reading a lot and I've been reading a lot from Utah authors, you being one of them and the other one being Jack Carr. Have you read any of his books? No, but I should have. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to figure that out. No, I've been are, you, reading. are you familiar with him at all? I've heard the name, but no, I'm not. So I'm going to have to become familiar. I know Andy from from Andy Wayman from Idaho, and I've been reading some of his stuff. But yes, well, before you get too excited, Jack Carr does not. Well, 
there is there's a little bit of a tie in here. He's not a a hunting slash bird dog. You know, it's not maybe not the first kind of novel that that would come to mind. He writes books that would be I don't know what you would call the genre, but kind of the special operations CIA military oh. thrillers that that All type right, of, there you go. of book. Yep. He's a he's a former Navy SEAL. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast a number of times, which is kind of where I uh, got introduced to him. But I do love his books because he does. There, there are hunting themes in some of them and even in even hunting, I think it was the, he, he writes a, he's written a series of books about the protagonist in the story, James Reese. And it's either the third, second or third book. I think it's the third that actually has a lot of hunting in, in the book and, and hunting themes, not upland bird hunting, but he gets really into, he gets really into gear and sort of describing firearms and he's very, very detail oriented. So having like gotten familiar with you a little bit and listening to some of the other interviews and, uh, you would appreciate it because you're a very, uh, you're a critical thinker and you're, you're kind of a, an analyst in, in many ways, I feel like. Well, I'll have to check it out. It sounds like it's right up my alley. And I, I do love a, a good work of fiction. So spinning yeah. a yarn, you know. Yes. Yep. Yep. And they are, they're good stories, thrillers. Um, the first book is called The Terminal List. I'm trying to think if there's a, I'm totally blanking if there's like a name for the series in general. But uh, if you start Googling Jack Carr, you'll find it. He's a, uh, so he kind of opens every book with like a letter from the author and then he signed it off Park City, Utah. And I literally read that about 60 minutes ago, knowing that I was going to be chatting with you. So Utah authors is a theme for me lately, Brad. Right. All right. Well, <laughs> keep it up. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good place in a lot of ways. What, what is keeping you busy in Utah right now? We just chatted about July being kind of the dog days of summer and we're, I think a lot of us are looking ahead, but what's Brett Wanakot up to out in Utah these days? Well, I mean, I've, I've had about, five years of catching up to do on my house in the last <laughs> two months. So I've been doing a lot of that. And then I've been getting out muskie fishing a little bit. Okay. Um, chasing tiger muskies is something that I, I really enjoy. And of course there's, there's some people I'm helping with their dogs, some good friends. And so I've been out doing a little dog training too. Um, haven't been doing much with my dogs, but I've been doing a bunch with theirs. We're trying to get them broke before hunting season. And so, sure. Anyway, um, but, but that, that's about it. You know, I did catch a pretty nice tiger muskie the other day. It was fun. So. What is, what's muskie fishing like in Utah? And I will admit to just feeling like Utah comes to mind for me. I just am envisioning this Western state, right? And muskie fishing is not the first thing that comes to mind. Although when I, when I take a critical look at it, I know very little about Utah, but if somebody says they're muskie fishing, I think my mind is immediately going to go to the Midwest, like Minnesota or Wisconsin, where I'm at. Yeah. And I, I fantasize about fishing in the you know upper Midwest for sure. for real muskies. We have these hybrids here. Uh, they, they put them, they started putting them in lakes in about well, the late eighties, probably like 88 yeah. or 89. Um, and they're a sterile hybrid. Uh, and, and they're here just to control uh, stunted, you know, forage fish populations, oh, okay. crappie, perch, okay. things like that. They use them as a as a as a tool, but in the process, they've created some some pretty fun trophy fisheries. And uh, I don't get a ton of time to fish these days, but when I do get time to fish, almost always it's chasing muskies because, well, why not? Yeah, yeah. Well, and muskie from afar, muskie fishermen tend to be fanatical, like like a lot of us upland bird hunters are. So I, I could definitely see why you would be yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you spend a bunch of time on the water, and you work really hard at it, and it's it's this. You have to keep focus. I, I I love the challenge of it. It's, yeah. 
super fun. And then yeah. when you finally do get a fish and he just leaves you shaking, it's, um, it's cool. One of those challenging pursuits where it's, where it's, it's the build up to it that kind of makes it what it is. 100%. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah. O- I, often the I case in bird hunting as well. Yeah. Do you, do you do some musky fishing? You know what? I I don't even know if I've ever caught a muskie. Um, definitely have have tangled with some some good northern pike over yeah. the years. I used to do a lot more walleye fishing and kind of inland lake fishing. Uh, fishing for me is one of those things. I love to do it, but it's just it's one of those things that I've kind of carved out of my life for the time being. Um, hopefully uh, it'll come back, and I definitely am gonna gonna be taking my boys fishing. We've done a little bit already, but uh, we'll see. I, and and musky that that sort of musky fishing popularity. I just haven't really been along for the ride at, at this, up to this point. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I've had to, like, like I said, I don't get to fish much either. You get so many things going on and you have to sort of pick and you choose, you know, writing yeah. novels is rather time consuming and <laughs> conservation works time consuming and running dogs and trials. And, you know, believe it or not, I have to work for a living too. So right. um, anyway, it's, it's, I'm sure you're in the same boat. You got a lot of irons in the fire. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. It's a, everything's a balancing act and, and time is a valuable resource, right? That's our, that's our big limitation. The the most valuable. Yeah. Yep. So you said you caught a pretty nice, what's a, what's a nice tiger muskie? Oh, it was probably 38 inches or something. Okay. Okay. Something like that. I didn't measure him. I just, you know, I've, I've caught a bunch and it wasn't anywhere close to my biggest. So I got a quick picture of him and made sure we got him back in the water and I should say her. I think they're all sterile females, I think. Okay. But anyway, okay. but she swam away happy and, and that's half the fun. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of musky fishing is that a 50 inch fish is kind of a, is kind of a, a significant mark. Is it, is it possible for you to catch a 50 inch fish? Um, they say it is, it hasn't been yet. Okay. <laughs> I've, been, okay. I've been chasing, I've been chasing a 50 incher for about 30 years, but okay. <laughs> I, I caught one that was 48 once and that's my biggest. So, yeah. but we, you know, and I'm probably not going to do it cause I don't spend enough time on the water these days to, to really have a, a real shot at it. But yeah, it's, it's the possibilities there and that's part of what keeps you going. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. I, the, I think the biggest pike I ever caught was a 46 inch Northern pike. Big, oh, that's a great, great yeah. fish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We were, we were, uh, fishing in Ontario, jigging for wall, you know, kind of my favorite way to do it. Just sitting on a spot, jigging for vertical jigging for walleyes. I mean, you're catching tons of fish and then eventually a Northern pike comes in there and he's all fired up and maybe he's chasing a few of your walleyes coming to the boat. And yeah. I hooked up and had the jig just in the corner of his mouth and was fortunate to get him all the way in. It's a, it's a blast. Now are you fishing steel leader or fluorocarbon leader or something? You know you what? I actually, this was, so this is going back a while, but I, I was got in my head that I liked using fireline uh-huh. and fireline, not really great for jigging because you can't break it off when you want to, right. but by, by using Fireline, when I was up there, I would very rarely get bitten off by pike. So if somebody was going to pull in a decent pike, it was probably going to be me because everybody huh. else was using monofilament. Right. Well, and you have almost zero stretch, so you're probably exactly. getting better, better contact to your lure. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. I do, uh, I do miss, miss, uh, jigging for hungry walleyes. It's a, uh, that's a blast. I love fishing a jig. Yeah. I don't get to do that ever anymore. I used to do it all the time when I was younger. Maybe we need to stop this upland game hunting thing and start fishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toss it in and yeah. and uh, turn our turn our setters into boat dogs. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Do your dogs go I, on the boat with you? Oh yeah, they're they're real good on the boat and and they they seem to love it. Um, they they're no good at finding where the fish are at all. <laughs> <laughs> that nose can't penetrate 
down into the depths. Uh, funny, funny story though. I used to have a setter years ago that, that, uh, I guess he figured I took him fishing a lot and I guess he figured that his role was to, to go point wherever I was fishing. So he, he was always locked up on the next hole in the river or, or something. It was kind of, kind of strange. Guys used to think it was pretty fun. <laughs> so now that, now that you mentioned that I, when we go down to our cabin, my older setter Hartley, he will, he goes down in the water. It's a little sandy beach and kind of shallow water and we've got bluegills there right and he oh, cool. when we started going to this cat my parents bought it in 2016 we started going down there eventually he discovered the bluegills in the clear sandy water and from that day on he is obsessed with just going in the water and just wading up and down the shore pointing looking at <laughs> you know, every once in a while pouncing at a bluegill i mean he's never caught one but he will literally be down there from sunrise to sunset if I don't pull him out and, and make him take a break, which <laughs> is just funny. But then he got this thing with, with fishing where if I bring a fishing rod out, he's he's into my lure or my jig. Oh, and boy. to the point where he will, if I don't pull it away from him, he will go out. So I don't fish when he's in the water. And if we want to fish, if the boys and I want to fish, he's got to go up in the crate. And <laughs> keep, I just, keep him out of the water. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know why, I don't know why that happened or how he got into that, but he'll, <laughs> he'll swim out around the dock looking for the, looking for the lure or whatever the heck it is we're throwing. And it's, uh, it's, it's annoying when we do want to fish, but we just have to put him in the crate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I bet it makes you laugh a lot too. And that's yeah. all part of having a dog. But I'm, so. I'm assuming that your, your setters are not going after the musky lures. Cause that would be an issue. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're pretty good about just ignoring it. In fact, you know, they're usually worried about the birds that are flying around or, sure. you know, grebes on the water. So they've usually got a distraction of some kind. It seems like but Yeah. <laughs> when there's a, when there's a fish on all focus is on what's going on though, because there's a lot of ruckus going on. Sure. So, yeah it's just amazing how that how that prey drive will kind of manifest you know whatever it is you you're doing oh it is it's it's fun yeah i gotta love a bird dog well circling back to the conversation of birds and bird dogs given that it is july and a lot of us are kind of looking ahead i wondered i haven't talked to anybody out west in a little bit i wondered uh i talked to a listener last week and he was kind of filling me in on you know, there was some really dry conditions in the previous few years, but it sounds like uh, that is not the case this year and you've been getting a lot of rain. Is that is that the case at all in Utah? Yeah, yeah, that is the case. Um, we had severe drought um, to the point where we had some birds that were really suffering. Sadly, we had a really hard winter on top of that drought. So we yeah. didn't grow very much food and we had a tough winter. Um, that said, I'm still hopeful uh, I, I know that in some areas we lost, and we're not known as a pheasant state. We don't have very many, but I know we lost a bunch of pheasants in the places that we do have some. Um, I've been, I saw a fair amount of sharp tails in the spring. I saw a fair amount of huns in the spring. I'm hopeful that the grouse are just, uh, you know, predisposed uh, to be able to deal with it. Um, right. I, I've, you know, the forest grouse, we have roughs and, and, and duskies, we call them blues. Um, most of us that have been around it a while because yep. we, we go back before the, the, the species split, right? The separation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the separation. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, I think they probably will do okay. They can go up and winter on pine needles and, and right. stuff. So, so I think the chuckers in the West desert are probably gonna, I, I've got good, I'm feeling good vibes from the West desert sure, uh, sure. with the, with the precip because that's huge. And I don't think we had huge winter kills on, 
in, in our chuckers in most of the West Desert. There might be some places where we did. What's bad for chucker in the winter? Just real severe cold temps, heavy snow? What What is it? So the hardest thing I've seen on them, so they're, they live in steep country, right? And, yeah. and the, the, the sun is coming from the south in the wintertime. And so the, the southern exposure, those hills have to burn off to expose food for the chuckers. Gotcha. So what, what's really hard on them, and we get here in, in the Intermountain in inter West, we get these, uh, these temperature inversions sometimes. And fortunately, we were able to avoid them last year for the most part. But the temperature inversions come in and the warm air, the cold air gets trapped down low and the warm air is up high and we don't get any sunshine. And so there's no sun burning those, the, the south slopes off. And when that mm -hmm. happens, it's pretty hard on chuckers. Um, so we get heavy, heavy snow and then an inversion. That's like a, that's a bad deal. Um, we've seen that before. Um, so when you get that inversion, you've got heavy fog and or clouds. You're just not getting sunlight penetration. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so nothing, nothing burns off. The snow just sits on the ground and it kind of crystallizes and it stays cold. And it's, it's pretty miserable time to be at Utah, if I'm honest. <laughs> but, I mean, you get up in the mountains, you can get above it, but sure. I mean, that usually means, and sometimes hunting chuckers, you can get above it, but you know, anyway, it can be a bad deal. Yeah. Yeah. And that, well, and that was really going to be kind of my, like, my question is, is at this time of year, sort of what, as a, yeah. as somebody that is a real passionate bird hunter and, you know, I, I imagine looking ahead to the season, what things are you paying attention to? You know, what are you, what are you hoping to see or just what observations are you making about weather and conditions at, at this point in the year? Yeah. So, um, in the last few years, we've had zero grass. Um, I think last year in places, there was just no new growth because it was so dry and our winter mm. was so bad and we're so dependent on our snowfall. This year we had killer snowfall. We had, um, spring rains. Um, uh, we've got grass up to the tops of our, our thighs. We can't see dogs to train them because of the grass is so tall. Uh, it's, it's a really good problem to have. The coolest part about it is the insects are back. Mm. Um, during that drought, we saw very few insects, um, in the springtime. And now we're seeing everybody I'm talking to is saying, oh man, hoppers for days. And we've been seeing them since, you know, early June, which is, which is killer because that's, you know, that's during hatch time. And yep. if those chicks can find those insects, I think we're going to have good brood survival rates as long as something else didn't get them. Yeah. So, de so depending on, on what birds made it through the winter, the, the conditions have been good. You're seeing insects and they've got cover. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a friend of mine says cautiously optimistic. Yeah, so yeah, I'll yeah. go, I'll go with, with, with him. And, and it's kind of funny here. I don't know, maybe it's, it's this way everywhere, but, but here you can have a killer hatch and great brood survival on one mountain range. Speaking of chuckers specifically, or forest grouse for that matter, the roughs yeah. and the blues and, and go, you know, 30 miles away and have almost zero hatch and zero survival. It always blows my mind. And it's part of what makes hunting up on birds so fascinating is, yep. is what happened? Why? And, and, and I really enjoy that part of, of the game, the, the guessing and trying to figure and stuff. So, yeah, I totally agree. The more I do it, the more I, the more I enjoy that as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm not big on projections and, and, you know, trying to predict like what's going to happen, but at the same point, I am interested, like, what are you looking at? What observations as somebody that's been hunting for a long time and doing this for what things are you paying attention to? Cause to your point, it's fun, but it's also how we, how we learn things and, and put things together. And by making those observations, then when you go try a place in the fall or in the fall and, and find, 
either good or bad results and then try another spot and you see something else. It kind of helps you put that puzzle together, right? It, it does. And here it's, it's almost always about timed precipitation. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, and, you know, it could be a cold front that came in and gave a bunch of chicks hypothermia. You know, it could be anything, but, yeah. but we, I watch it. I've watched it all my life. I've hunted, you know, the same 300 mile radius, you know, most of my life. And it, it's, that's what makes it fun for me. Yeah. Um, it, you know, so going deeper and learning more about, uh, about yeah. that area. Yeah. Yeah. And learning more about the different species. We, we were blessed with, with quite a number of species to hunt yeah. within that radius. And so, um, you know, my, my dad, he was a pheasant hunter. That's, that was bird hunting to him. And of course he gave me all my starts. And, um, you know, as I got older, I started, yeah, you can only hunt pheasants. And here at that time, you could only hunt pheasants for like 15 days. Oh, wow. And, and so it's like, yeah, you got these bird dogs and you train them all year and hunt for 15 days. Didn't make sense. And that's, that's when I started learning. Like when I was a teenager and I learned to drive, I started learning about, um, you know, forest grouse. And of course we knew they were there, but most people here thought of them as camp meat for right. deer hunting, you know? And, uh, anyway, so I started learning about it. So I've had to learn all that stuff, you know, from my teenage years on, mostly on my own. Yeah. But it was, but it was fun and it's always been fun. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you, I heard you say that in another interview that kind of when you, when you got your driver's license, that's when, when you really started kicking around yeah. and doing stuff and that, and I was nodding cause that, that was similar for me. You know, I'd been exposed to hunting and, and I really loved it before that. But once yeah. I, once you get that driver's license, a little bit of mm-hmm. independence, um, that's when it really, things really took off for me. Yeah. Take the training wheels off and, and exactly. yeah, that's all, all it took. And then, you know, I got my own bird dog and that, you know, that dog, if you got a head on your shoulders at all, if you just hang out with a bird dog long enough, he'll teach you some, some things. So, yeah. so that yeah. was huge for me too. What was your first bird dog again? So my first dogs were out of my dad's litters and my dad was a breeder of German short-haired pointers. And so my first dogs that I attempted to train and attempted to turn into to bird dogs were, were that. Um, when I moved out of the house, um, I had to get rid of my short hair. And as soon as I was in a place I was able, I got another dog. And in my mind, it, it, you know, of course I've learned different now, but in my mind, a German short hair didn't make a good house dog because my dad's dogs were kennel dogs and, and he was kind of different about them. But, um, so I got a Brittany and that was my first, the first dog that I really six, I, well, the first dog that trained me, I don't know that I did anything. To, <laughs> I don't know that I did a lot to successfully train him, but, but he set me up for success a few times. And, and he, I mean, that's, that's the dog that taught me how to hunt. So what was your first dog? So still with me here, which, which is kind of part of my story. You know, I've, I've been grouse hunting most of my life, but I did not get a, get a dog until 2014 was when I got my first bird dog. And I've got two, two English setters. Well, so, that's, so you started with taste. It took me a long time to learn <laughs> right, that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really, it's funny because I, I, I really stumbled into that. I've told this story many times, but yeah. growing up, I always envisioned that I would get a German short hair, or at least that's what I envisioned when I thought of a bird dog, you know, yeah. watching the hunting shows and that, I just thought of German short hair, kind of like, that's what I pictured as a bird dog. And when I was, when I was looking for a dog, I just kind of, I, I think I was looking for I started searching around for grouse dogs and in Minnesota, you know, I wasn't looking too far and wide at that point and really just very quickly stumbled onto Jerry Coulter and Northwoods bird dogs. And, and long story short, I've, I've, I've had his dogs since 2014 now. And, and I really feel fortunate to have landed there right away as, well, as you pointed out. Cause yeah. yeah. And especially at that kennel. I mean, boy, he's, he's, he's brought up some, some really nice dogs over the years. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, I had heard at, 
or at least I, I saw some of the, uh, some of the lineage that your dogs are out of. And there's, there's some shared stuff in there with, I think with Tacoma Mountain Sunrise and, sure. um, there Ridge was Creek, a Cody and, and, yeah, and, yep. and, you know, Northwoods Nirvana. Yeah. And in, in, uh, Aaron's hidden shamrock, yes. um, there was some breedings there. I think my younger setter Rose is out of, uh, Aaron's Prometheus. Oh yeah. Yeah. That Northwoods did a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't remember how that went. I think, was he a litter mate of shamrock? I, 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 I knew at one point, but I don't know. So, this. Something, I, th- I think it was something like that, but yep. yeah, my rocks dog is, is out of a, a shamrock bitch. Um, okay. and, and tease Nickelback is his sire. And I really like what he's showing me. Of course he's three now, so I better be liking what he's showing me by now, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he's, he's been a really fun dog, um, to train. So, uh, I, I'm going back to that. I've got a, I'm, I'm going to get a pup this next winter. I'm trying to get another okay. pup out of that same sire bred back to that same shamrock stuff. Cause I really like what he's showing me. So, um, anyway, I'm excited for that. Yeah. What, what are some things with a three-year-old, three-year-old English setter? What are some of those things that you're seeing that you like? Well, I mean, first of all, with him, I like his early development. He, he started out hot. He, he did, it's really wonderful as a trainer when the dog makes you look good Yeah, because, you know, I had the dog before him, um, wasn't, I wasn't so lucky. He had, he had some things going for him. Um, but everything I tried, it'd blow up. I mean, it just, it just, he pushed me as a trainer constantly. And in the end, I'm a better trainer for it. But coming from that, it was so satisfying that everything I did and everything I tried worked because you know just good genes yeah and um i mean he the first time he saw a pigeon uh, or the first time he he found a pigeon we'd set him up you know we'd been tossing birds for him a little bit and set him up with bird introduction and then i hit a pigeon and he went in and pointed it and this crazy homer stood up and walked away and he took a couple steps and pointed and then it walked away a little bit further and he took a couple more steps and pointed, but he never did rush in on the bird. So that's, I mean, that's the kind of, the kind of stuff I was working with, with like right. a, a 12 week old puppy. So, um, eventually the bird flushed and he went chasing and was all happy, but well, yep. you see that that's, that's great. So th- fast forward three years, all those genes have, I put them to use and I've refined them and, and, and he's, uh, you know, we run NASTRA trials yep. um, and, uh, He's, uh, he's been winning in Nastra. I think he was, I think he was second place in high point dog standings this year as a three-year-old, which is, which is pretty good. Um, and, uh, I mean, he just, every time he goes in the field, I just see more maturity out of him. There's no more, you know, puppy goofiness about it. Mm -hmm. He goes out there, he's got a job to do. He's serious, serious about it. I mean, he still loves his work. He's just got an intensity about him. Everything he does is intense. Yeah. Just, you know, and when he points a bird, he's just got this confidence and arrogance about him that I just love. Yeah. So that is a little style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That tails normally straight in the air every now and then it'll kind of, it's almost like he's overstimulated, especially when he was younger and every now and then it'll just kind of curl over just a little bit as, yeah. but, but you know, 90% of the time, boy, he's, he's straight in the air and looks, looks like a million bucks and let's face it. Tails don't find birds, but it sure is fun walking in on a high-tailed bird dog point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one. I, I definitely, I have come to know and and love that about my dogs. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, and it it's it's uh you know that sometimes that little bit of extra extra fur sticking up can be real helpful in the grouse woods too. So oh yeah, well anywhere, even in the grass. Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. Even 
even out in the Chucker Hills where there's not a lot of, you know, f- you know, foliage to get in the way, we have rocks and, and yeah. just the terrain, you know, you'll see the tip of a tail sticking out of a rock slide or something. And, yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's advantageous. Of course, we have GPSs that cheat. Right. And, right. But it's fun to see it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, uh, which dog is it of yours that you have that funny uh, thing on Instagram where he's sitting next to a beer. Was that, is that the one you're talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember that. exact. Uh, name. It's like a, like a little puppy where he's sitting. Oh there yeah. I, yeah. I think you Photoshopped him next yeah. to a beer. <laughs> a, fr- a friend of mine actually did that and sent okay. it to me. Um, he has, he's, so he's the dog that was kind of hard to bring up. And because okay. of that, I share my training on social media um, for a number of reasons. Um, but uh, as he came up, I was pretty hard on him. At least people felt like I was being pretty hard on it, and, and so I started calling him the doofus, and uh, <laughs> and he he grew kind of a following, uh, much to my surprise, and he even he I mean he's even winning <laughs> in Nastra, but but that's him, and he's he's just got a goofy personality. If yeah. I put a camera in front of him, he cur- he likes to curl a lip under. I mean, all setters do it, but he doesn't yeah, all yeah. the he does it like out of pride or something. I don't know. He, he's just a goofball. And anyway, he's, he's fun to have around. He's, he's not the most stylish dog in the world. He's not the, the most fun to walk in on, on point with, but he is really bright um, compared mm. to my other setters. I always tell people, I kind of like a setter that's sort of of moderate intelligence because they're easier to train. He was so smart. He would blow up everything I did. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't like pound an exercise at all with him because he he's just like totally, one step ahead of you. Yeah, man, all the time. And um, now that's an adv- that's an advantage because he's a bird finding fool. He just yeah. doesn't look that great doing it all the time. Sometimes he does. Um, but anyway, he's got a little bit of a fan club and and they all give me a hard time for giving him a hard time. And, <laughs> and it's all part of the fun. If, if social media was ever fun, that's the part of social right. media that becomes, that's fun, right? The people. And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, making, making, making about friends. It. Yeah, there are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you, you and I, for instance, I would have never met you probably. Indeed. Before. Indeed. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's the best example. Just, just connecting with other people that uh, have similar interests is it's uh, unlike you could ever do before really. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, un, it's unbelievable. In my lifetime, I've watched it, you know, everything from. Well, I don't want to date myself, but um, you know, the invention of of the PC. I mean, to yeah. <laughs> to, to the internet, to internet forums, to chat rooms, yeah. MySpace. I mean, anyway, it's just what were the? I heard you mention the mention the. I'm old enough to know what what uh, what yeah. forums are and sure. and have been on. So, what were some of those ones that you uh, you got started writing on? Oh, um, the refuge, the duck hunters refuge. Okay. Um, years ago. Did you, do you know that one? No, I don't. Um, I don't. So yeah. That one. And, um, gosh, I read a couple of local ones. Um, there was one here called Utah bird dogs for a mm-hmm. while that, that, that I started sharing stories on. And there was another one that was another local one, Utah wildlife network that I started sharing stories on. I didn't get real involved in a lot of the national ones with the exception of the refuge. I was, I was a competition duck caller. And so I was, always hunting down the trying to find the magic flute you know sure. and uh, and so i was really involved with with the waterfowl forums more than the, the upland game forums at that time yeah. but uh, but that's that's where i got started and it's pretty crazy uh you know if you ask my, my high school english teacher <laughs> who's most likely to write a novel i'd be the last name that came to her mind <laughs> if it even came to her mind at all so yeah. 
Uh, that's funny. Well, we're we're good. We're definitely going to talk about your writing, but I'm not done talking bird yeah. dogs and shotguns yet. I did want to ask <laughs> you: um, Do you have all male setters? No, I've got one female. Okay. Um, I I I like male setters because they don't come into heat. But yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the female she's she's been the best dog we've ever had, though. I mean, if I'm honest, um, I mean she's five time champion. Mm. Uh, she's got four region champions. She's she's she's, ele- she's eleven now, right? Yeah, she's yeah. eleven, and she's yeah, and that's that's sad too. But um, yeah, she, but it, there was nothing worse than you know going into a trial and preparing really hard, and like three days before the trial, you start seeing spotting, sure. and you have to pull her from the trial, or you know, three days before opening day is even worse. You know, and she's out for three weeks or you've got to hunt her alone. And, mm-hmm. um, so that's, that's what, that's the only reason I like, you know, I'm, I've been buying male setters because I decided that was just a lot to deal with. Yeah. So, so, um, nothing against the way they hunt. My gosh. I mean, yeah, she, she was a beast in the chucker hills too. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, well, that, that's partly why I ask because I I have one male and one female, and so the the female is the younger one, and I've had to learn what is involved with the heat cycle and and that sort of thing, and uh, it's it's a lot um, less of a new. I don't I don't know if nuisance is the right word, but it's it's yeah. it's not as bad as I maybe thought it could have been. But the issue is having uh, having a male dog. <laughs> around as well. And I learned yeah. that very quickly, obviously. Yeah. Right. Right. But so, so I, I feel like I've reached a point where I'm probably from here on out, I'm probably going to try to have the same sex of dogs. Mm-hmm. And that for me, it probably will be a female. Um, just because I, I don't know. I, I really like, she's a little bit smaller. She kind of, to your point, she does everything that Hartley does in a little bit smaller package. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I haven't, I haven't reached the point where I need to make that decision yet, but it's kind of, kind of already made, but sure what I was curious to ask you is do you see differences between that you would attribute to, you know, male setter in, in take a step back to bird dogs, male dogs versus female dogs. Cause I see differences between my two dogs, but it's a small sample size, one of each. So I'm hesitant to sort of say, Oh, well that's because she's a female. Wow. And I've, and I've heard people say things like a female dog might develop quicker and other things. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's all generalizations, right? I, I don't know if you can, if you can, you know, grab the whole breed and go, you know, males always do this female. In, in my experience, uh, my females have, have developed quicker. They've been a little bit less obedient when given the chance mm. to, to push things. 
Uh, my males, they're kind of, I will, I don't want to say they're dumb, but they're kind of big and dorky like me, you know, they, uh, they'll hunt until they're dead, but they're super obedient. I don't, I haven't had any obedience problems with male setters where, whereas Sunny in trials, it's all her and I'm just in the field to shoot birds and I don't have any control over her. I'll be the first to admit I don't have, I have very minimal control. I can keep her in the field most of the time. Um, and that's, that's, just, I mean, I can get her to hunt in front of me uh, most of the time, but, yeah. but she, she has this, this switch that, that goes off and, and she's just done. And the other female setter I had was, was, was kind of like that too. She, she would go from, I mean, they're the sweetest things in the world around the house, but boy, she, that prey drive would kick on yeah. and she was, she was tough to manage too at times, but that, that's the generalizations that, that I can draw is, is the males tend to be just whatever you want, you know, um, they're still driven in the, in the field, but yeah. they're much more inclined to be obedient, at least in, in my, the, the, in my small sample size. Yeah. Oh, and, and I, I have sort of the same feelings about, you know, generalizations as you do. I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of latch on to too many of those. Cause you make a comment like, you know, short hairs, short hairs aren't house dogs or, yeah. or Britney's don't do this. Exactly. And it's just like, you're just not going to get very far with that stuff, but but kind of pulling at the strings a little bit and what are the tendencies and yeah. it's interesting to me. And I, and I, I would say sort of the way you describe your male and female setters, I feel like kind of encapsulates how I view mine. Like the male, it's just almost more of like a kind of a happy go lucky kind of best buddy type mentality where Rose, she is, as you described the sweetest, like that's the only way I could describe her, just the sweetest damn dog but she's a clever, she's a clever little thinker. And that just kind of, it's, it's a, it, it gives off a different sort of feeling or sense about her in that way. And she's, I mean, she's really smart and she's, she's a really, really good bird dog. Uh, it's just, it's, they're fun, man. They keep it, you on it, your toes. <laughs> it would be interesting to pull like 300 setter owners right. who have had multiple dogs and just have them, it would just be, that would be a fascinating study if someone had a whole lot of time and nothing else to do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm jotting a note down because I just completed a survey of uh, of the Birdshot podcast listeners, or it's, it's still open. So if anybody's listening to this and hasn't completed it yet, they should do that. But that's a, yeah. that's a good idea. It's good feedback. Yeah. Because you have nothing but time, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk shotguns a little bit yeah. because I was, yes. uh, so I knew you for a Browning guy because of the book that we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But also I think I, I saw quite a bit of that on your feed, but I was maybe not surprised, but I didn't know that you were into side-by-sides uh, a little bit. And I, I heard you mention the Fox Sterlingworth. I saw a post of that on your Instagram. And I also saw, it looks like you've got a Webley Scott 700. Beautiful, beautiful gun. Yeah. Talk to me about shotguns, so, Brett. <laughs> yeah. So when I was a boy, my dad carried a Browning um, uh, superposed. And I thought that was, you know, looking up at my dad, watching him walk through the, through the pheasant grass, I thought that was pretty cool. So I always wanted a, a Browning double barreled shotgun is what I called yeah. them at the time. I didn't know any better. And so the <laughs> first thing I did, I got a bonus when I was, I think I was 20 years old and I, I was working full time and I got a bonus um, and I blew the whole thing on a, on a Browning Satori. <laughs> so um, I, I hunted with that Satori and, and, as I, as I grew up and I had more 
you know, more money to spend. I bought more Satori's and I bought autos and I played with pumps and all the things that, that guys do, especially guys who tend to be a little bit obsessive like me. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I always wanted side by sides, but, um, I, you know, let's, so I live just a few miles from Ogden and Ogden's where John Browning's shop was. And ah. Browning is in Morgan, Utah. It's 20 minutes from here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was always hooked with Browning and I still, man, I, I hunt with, with a 525 feather more than any other feather Satori more than any other gun. Six pound, 11 ounces. I heard yes. you say that. It's a really yeah. nice weight for a 12 gauge. It is. It is a really nice weight for a 12 gauge. And as long as you're not shooting trap with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, uh, it's, it, no, it's a, it's a great gun. And I have a bunch of Satori's that I can cycle through when they're all the same size and they all fit me. They're all the same measurements. I mean, it, it, anyway. So that said, um, going forward, as I started writing, especially this novel, I started thinking more and more about old guns and tradition. Mm. And, and so I, I got, uh, I bought a model 12 from a friend of mine okay. when I was writing the book, uh, and started playing with that. Um, and I, I took it hunting and, and shot uh, limited chuckers with it, which was what really gauge is that model twelve? It's a it's a it's a twelve gauge. Okay. It's um, I tend to buy twelve gauges because it's hard to buy twenty gauges for a thousand dollars more of just about anything. Yeah. Um, and unless you can you're shoot anything new. out of a twelve gauge, it, and they're cheap to shoot. Yeah, yeah, and you can shoot an ounce a shot just as you mm-hmm. can for anything else, as long as the weight isn't bad. So yep. anyway, um, I played with that. Uh, the first time I brought it to my shoulder and shot a bird, I forgot to pump it. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a pretty comical, comical day on the Chucker Hills that day. But anyway, um, and then I, you know, I, I started realizing that side-by-sides aren't that much money, especially older side-by-sides, older American side-by-sides. As long as you mm-hmm. stay with like 12 gauges, cause it seems like no one wants a 12 gauge anymore. Yep. And, and of course they made more 12 gauges than anything else. Yep. And so I, I bought a, a Sterling Worth and an Elsie Smith. And, a, and then I bought an A grade, a Fox A grade okay. um, and a, a 1919 A grade. And that's where I learned about having to have them certified by gunsmiths and all the problems that old guns have. And yeah. that taught me about mechanics of guns and it just, all this just feeds curiosity plus the traditions. I mean, let's, let's face it. So you take a 1919 gun and you throw it in your truck and you go hunting and you pull it out of the case. And this isn't a museum piece. This has scars on it from the previous owners and you pull it out of the case. And, and as you do that, imagine who first pulled that gun out of the case. Were they in a model T were they horseback? Did they buy that gun out of a Sears catalog? Um, how did they even get it? Uh, it just spawns all these questions. And, yep. and, and it's so much fun to hunt with those old guns like that. So that said, I kind of got to where I liked the side-by-side a little bit. Um, still, I'm hunting with Satori's most of the time. But, sure. Um, so I, I thought, well, I'd like to buy some. I'd like to get into this English thing. Um, but you know, you start looking at Holland and Holland's and Purdy's and, uh, that's, uh, that's more the price of my house than the price of my guns. So, (laughs) um, anyway, but I, I did discover uh, doing some research that, uh, you know, a lot of English guns are, are short chambered and stuff and, and I can probably reload and get around that. Mm -hmm. But I, I talked to, uh, John Taylor, who's a friend of mine, lives in Wyoming. And he was telling me about his Webley uh, 700 just on, on Facebook one day, just messaging. And uh, I thought, you know what? That's not a, that's not a bad idea. And it's a 12 gauge. And anyway, so I found one. Uh, it wasn't 
terrible amount of money and it was two and three quarter inch gun weighs just over six pounds. It weighs nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't want to shoot anything that's more than an ounce. I'll just tell you that right now. But, um, so uh, 26 inch barrels. It is. Yeah. So it's 26 inch barrels. I would have preferred 28. Sure. But, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to buy another one with 28. I think this one's choked pretty open and I'm, I, I have, uh, I have, aspirations of shooting grouse with it we'll see i may not be able to hit me with it hit them with it but we're gonna give it a go and then i if i can find one that's got uh, tighter chokes and i'll i'll hunt chuckers and, yeah. and sharp tails and such with, with with that um anyway the english side-by-sides really offer some cool things um and then i started thinking well gosh you know maybe i want one that i i'm comfortable shooting steel through because mm-hmm. you know business expensive and, and who knows where the lead's going to go. And anyway, uh, so I started looking at, at modern side-by-sides. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, I don't want to say garbage. It's, it's, they're not bad guns, but they're just not, you know, you take anything that's new, that's $2,000 or less and hold it up to, to this Webley and Scott or right. um, even some of the span. I've also bought some Spanish guns. Yeah. Um, you hold them up for the Spanish guns. They just don't even compare. So then I discovered Upland Gun Company. Now I don't have one of those yet, but yeah. I'm hoping you're going to, you're <laughs> you going to explain them. Yeah. Well, I, I plan to get one, but when I, when I buy one of those, I want to buy something special. Yeah. I want, I want, I want really nice wood. I want s- some engraving. I plan yeah. to spend some money. So what do you like? With what, well, what's your favorite one you've got so, one i'm sure more than oh one, yeah, yeah 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 i'm yeah. i'm i'm lucky in that regard i get to i get to play around a little bit so i've the the first couple of years i i started hunting with them i mean before be, be, even before i was working for upland gun company i knew jerry and kind of knew what he was doing so he he let me borrow a, a zeus 20 gauge um which is interesting i'll kind of get there that you mentioned the or that i i noticed your your webley and scott but i took a zeus 20 gauge out to north dakota and and uh was hunting sharp tails with it and that was my first first experience and then i hunted with a venus 20 gauge and then last year i built a couple for myself that are kind of right in sort of the the sweet spot that you're talking about so i built two guns that were very much identical one 12 gauge that is very much akin to the old english game gun being that it's a it's a lightweight six and a quarter pound 12 gauge that is, you want to shoot seven eighth ounce one ounce loads out of it and it's it's perfect right you can do anything you can do anything with it i also built uh because we can you can build with a modern gun you can actually build a long barrel 28 gauge whereas if you try to go find a long barrel 28 gauge in the vintage market you're going to be paying an arm and a leg for it yep. right so mm-hmm. so that's one of the cool things that you can do with somebody like rfm and in, in building these guns um so so those are both venus guns that said the our zeus model the which is kind of our entry level it starts at 2000 so it's not you wouldn't call it an entry level gun, but that is very much the classic Anson Dealey box lock, very much like the Webley and Scott 700. And in the back of my mind, I'm I'm always kind of working on my next little project. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I have a I have an idea to build a, a RFM Zeus that kind of pays homage to the Webley and Scott 700 in a couple of ways. One of them being in the finishes that I love how the Webley and Scott 700 is finished with they're they're very often case colored and they've got, they've got the black and small parts, the forend lever, the top, the top lever. And they also have, I don't know if yours has this cause I didn't see the picture, but I was going to ask you if the floor plate is blacked. It is. 
Yeah. And I just, yeah. to, to me, there's just, it's totally it's, aesthetics, it's but classic. I look at that and I'm just like, that is awesome. Well, just, and just the way they're put together. I mean, every single line. So I, I work in, in, I make dyes for a living for a packaging okay. company in Salt Lake. And so I see fine measurements and fine lines all day long. And so you don't want to be my body, man, because any little flaw. And, and when I buy a gun, I see things that other people don't see. Sure. So, um, and Webley and Scott, I mean, it's, it's like a, a, a lower end gun over there, right? Right. Still, all the lines are perfect. The, the, the line on the forehand, the, the little uh, Anson and Dealey button on the mm-hmm. releases is, is, is perfect. It's, it's, everything is put together so well. And, and that's, that's what I would hope to find in a, in a, in a, you know, an Upland, uh, Upland gun company gun. Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing. I was kind of thinking of Zeus with case hardened parts and maybe yep. some, some pretty cool engraving, uh, maybe a 20 gauge 28s. Yeah, I would think something like that with tubes, probably. Yes, choke, Some, choke something tube. like something yeah. like that that you're not. Again, you're you're going to have a lot harder time finding in the vintage market. It, you know, exactly. if you're going to build a gun with yeah. us, build a little something different in that way. You yeah. know, we do lots of twenties and twenty eight gauges. A because sub gauges are popular right now, yeah. but B because, like I pointed out, it is hard to go and find. You know, if you want a Parker reproduction twenty eight gauge, or, or and that's not even a, a vintage gun, but if you want something like that in twenty eight with twenty eight inch barrels, it's it's yeah. going to be pricey. A, a twenty gauge Fox Sterlingworth it's, in any yeah. kind of shootable shape, you're in you're in twenty five hundred bucks. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's pretty hard to buy. So. In my mind, maybe you spend the money on the twenty gauge. Buy the, you know, some really nice. I'm I'm a lover of furniture. I think most of us are that are into these kind of guns anyway. I mean, right, duck guys, they like plastic, but I like you know that pretty pretty wood. And yeah, um, so I don't know. Where, what do you think about wood on those guns? I mean, where where's the where's the the place to start? Is is four enough? You need five? Is three good? What do you think? What, what yeah. what's your personal feeling? I, I mean, you know, so so much of that is you know I hear every different every different sort of idea. Like I don't want a nice piece of wood because I don't want to ruin it. Or I just like having nice, nice wood on guns. And, and, you know, everybody kind of comes at it a little bit differently. I I feel like grade three and four are, are where you're going to see a lot of that sort of classically dark mineral streaking, some nice grain flow to it, a little bit of variation in grade three, grade four, you can start to see some more extreme variation if you want. And then there's, then there's a fine line, you know, you, that you sort of cross over and things get so, you know, that marble cakey, like really, really, uh, kind of eccentric figure patterns, which is if you're trying to build, for me, I'm always kind of trying to, I have the cookie cutter of kind of the classic gun and I'm kind of a, plain vanilla guy where I, I like generally straight grain flow with a little bit of wave to it. So it, it doesn't necessarily, not that it looks out of place without that, but I guess that's just what I envision when I'm building these guns. So grade three and four, I can, I can find something in there that I like for my taste. But I mean, one of the neat things that we're able to do is when you're building a gun, you actually, we're going to send you a selection of, you know, three to three to six stocks that you get to choose. And so you're actually picking the piece of wood that goes on your gun, which ultimately gives the person that's building the gun a lot of comfort in that they're not paying for an upgrade and then hoping they get something they like, right? You get to actually give the thumbs up on the piece of wood. So that, that makes it fun for a lot of people. Well, that's amazing. That's, that's the whole, that's the whole experience that you yeah. hope for in building a, you know, a, a, at least a semi custom gun, right? I mean, geez, that's, that's, that's what, if I go to the sporting goods store and I buy a, uh, a, a Satori, um, 
I'm the pain in the butt that makes them pull every gun they have out <laughs> to see which one has the, has yeah. the best. So, yeah. so, you know, yeah, you can actually order something and buy a piece of, a piece of wood that, that's aesthetically pleasing to you because it's just like music. You might not like the same piece of wood that I yes. like. Um, although I, I imagine that we probably would, would meet somewhere in the same category probably. in wood, but yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, as I was, as I was scrolling down through your Instagram page today, I, I don't know what it was some clip of the dog but you you had the uh, song schism playing by tool and, uh, that, that put a smile on me i i haven't heard that song in a while but yeah, right. uh, definitely yeah. definitely a fan so you got yeah. good taste in music as well <laughs> well i'm all over the place i'm everywhere from elvis and and, yeah. and johnny cash to, to tool and uh, i hate to admit it i've been listening to monoskin lately it's like i don't know man that i'm not familiar with yeah. them i don't know if you want to be i i like <laughs> it but i i don't know if i can recommend it to anybody because it's just so not normal for me to like that it's sort of poppy and i hate Okay. I'm not a pop music guy, but yeah. anyway. Well, maybe it's a maybe it's a setter guy thing because I am like that with music too. Where mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't discriminate. I mean, if I hear a song that I like, I, I I just like it. And my musical taste is pretty pretty wide ranging. I I definitely like rock and metal a lot, but it's mm-hmm. uh to throw to throw a net over my musical interests would be very hard. Yeah, it's impossible for me, um, <laughs> I, and that's it too. Sometimes I don't know why I like it because right. this is everything. I hate auto tune. But he's auto-tuned like crazy. Or something. Yeah. But for some reason, I really like, you know, they, they have this, they, they sort of have this poppy stuff, and then they have right, this I'm really creative. How do I spell it, Brett? Um, M-A-N-E-S-K-I-N. Now I'm going to be pigeonholed by all, all right, the people all right. that, that like <laughs> country music into this this pop guy that likes this this really weird Italian. It's Italian. It's Italian music. Oh, hey, see, that fits with, that fits with <laughs> but, I, I work with Italian gun Yeah, right. Now, yeah. So. <laughs> It's, Ital- it's Italian Euro pop or something. I don't know what it is, but anyway, maybe you'll hate it. But <clears throat> I, that's I okay. got, yeah, it is okay because yeah. that's the beauty of all this stuff, right? So, well, it's cool to it's cool to hear about your little kind of venture into into side by sides, and especially you know you you landed in a great spot in going with an English gun. Webley Scott is a Birmingham box lock, which yes. many people are probably familiar with what the significance of that, but that is a lot of excellent guns. It was not made in London, but it was made in Birmingham where they made a ton of really, really good guns that were much more affordable. And when you go into that market, 12 gauge, they made a lot of 12 gauges and the English recognized you could do anything with the 12 gauge. And they made a lot of them with really good weights under six and a half pounds, great balance. You get a ton of value buying a vintage 12 gauge like that so yeah and from the looks of it you got a you got a real nice one there's a nice piece of wood on that and everything yeah it 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 i did i got a little bit lucky but i mean it, it sort of takes the argument away for hunting with a small bore because it's the same weight and exactly you know, yep. shells are cheap and easy to find so yeah yeah yep. anyway good so stuff you did say that has two and three quarter inch chambers in it it does it has two yeah. and three quarter inch chambers and uh 26 so you could inch shoot any reasonable load out of that yeah yeah yep. it is so it's choked skeet in the in the right barrel and okay. the left barrels um like improved modified and i haven't decided if i'm going to open it up i've been shooting some different loads through it to try to to find something that works and, and i've got it pretty dialed in i think yeah so um i think I'm going to leave it alone for a season. And if it, I don't like it, then I'll open it up. But 
Anyway. Yeah, that's usually a good way to before you. I mean, because we can think ourselves mm-hmm. to death and come up with the idea, but just go and shoot it. Go home. <laughs> yes. It's really easy to think yourself to death in July. <laughs> yes, yeah, you got that right. Where did you Where did you acquire it? Anywhere special? Did you Was it a friendly deal? Did you go online or how'd you get it? I just bought it on Guns International. Okay, yeah, yeah just like a lot of people do. Yep. Um, I recently met a guy locally here though that's important a few guns, and oh. that might be. Some people say that's not a good guy for me to know. Um, I think that's <laughs> probably exact. That's probably exactly the kind of guy I need to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. yeah. So hopefully the next one comes in a diff- little different way. But I'd buy another one. It, it worked out great. Good yeah. deal. Now, when you do your waterfowl hunting, are you are you shooting your Brownings double guns for waterfowling? Um, sometimes, yeah. Okay. I, I I shot a Satori for a lot of years hunting waterfowl. I've got some some autos. Um, some more traditional autos, some Browning Auto 5s, okay. older guns. I, I bought one. Um, I bought a Japanese one in the box with choke tubes that I can shoot steel through it. And and that's that's a super fun waterfowl gun. Uh, it's beautiful to look at, too. Um, so if I'm going someplace where I'm not going to beat a gun up in the boat or something, um, I like to shoot that gun. Uh, I also have some plastic guns, like, you know, some whatever. I got an old Browning Gold that I won in a duck calling contest. Yeah. And I've got a... Uh, an SX4, or uh, excuse me, an SX3. That's Winchester. A, yeah, Winchester. Yeah. That's a a great little, you know, a great little duck popper. Um, yep. And they, they take some recoil out of the load, so sometimes it's nice to shoot those right. gas-operated guns. But, yeah. 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 But as, as a rule, as a general rule, I don't care much for automatics, but. Yeah, they're they're not as interesting to me anymore. Although when I was doing a little bit of waterfowling, mm-hmm. I, I set my sights on a, a Beretta A4, well, it's an A391 sure. Extrema, and I have one. I still have it. Uh, yep. Great gun. Great that's, gun. Yeah. That's sort of what I thought of as a as a duck hunting gun. But admittedly, the reason we asked or I asked is because, you know, most of our customers at Upland Gun Company are Upland bird hunters at this point. But I do know that there is, I don't know if it's a trend or, you know, I really don't, I'm not that in tune with waterfowling and duck hunting anymore these days. But I do know there are some people that are, that are hunting with double guns. So naturally we're thinking, you know, what, what is it that they're after? Or what are they looking for? And we're starting to ask those questions. And, and cause again, we can do any, you know, we can out the barrels. We can, you can shoot modern ammunition. Yeah. Um, for, for some folks, it might be, uh, might be a, an opportunity. I'll be killing ducks with, with mine, with my 20 yeah. gauge. Yeah. Is that you know, a 20 gauge steel to modern 20 gauge steel is really pretty good. And, uh, yeah, over decoys, it's right. You know, it's perfect. So yeah. I have, I kind of have that in mind of buying something like that. That's cool. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to, I haven't shot ducks with a side by side yet, but that might be on the list this year. If I can find some low pressure, something in bismuth, that's not just hotter than heck. That's the problem with, with bismuth is it's so everything's so hot. It's which, pushed a little bit fast. Yeah. Which is yeah. great for a modern gun. I love those loads, but sometimes right. I want something I can shoot comfortably through that Webley and Scott without yeah, right. <laughs> or, or, or one of those foxes even, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Um, I've got a case of Kent bismuth that is, it's their Upland stuff, but it's only 1200 FPS. Um, so is it two and three quarter? It's, it, it was well, minus 28 gauge, but it, oh, is. it is two and three quarter, yeah. 1200 FPS low to six right. shots. I haven't shot a lot of it because I don't need to, yeah. but maybe check but 12, out their Upland. Yeah. Sure, I will. Twelve hundred is still pretty, pretty hot for a, you know, twenty-eight though. So I mean, it's still a pretty hot load. And, and I don't, I get it. I get why they're making it. That's what people want. I yeah. mean, if, 
if I'm hunting pheasants with bismuth, you know, I probably want something pretty hot. So anyway, but it'd be nice to see some low pressure loads. If RST could come out with some more and get their stuff together, it would be nice. It's a, it's an underserved market at this point. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk a millionaire's dream, Brett, because I just finished it yesterday. And man, first of all, thank you for writing it. It was it was really really enjoyable. Uh, as we talked about a couple times in this podcast, this time of year, it was just what I needed. I'm looking, you know, I'm we've rounded the bend. We're after the Fourth of July. I'm looking ahead, and I've been doing some more reading. And I guess I mentioned I was reading those Jack Carr novels, and and it was just what I needed to kind of light the flame. And for anybody that likes bird dogs, bird hunting, they would they would love this novel. It's a great story. Where did the uh, where did the inspiration come from to write this write this novel, Brett? So first of all, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to read it because, uh, that means a lot. That's why you write is to hopefully reach people and hopefully give some people some enjoyment. So the fact that you enjoyed it, that, that, that means a lot to me. And I, I really yeah. do appreciate that. I was hunting, I, you know, like I said, I've hunted a lot of the same places all my life, but I was hunting up in Idaho, uh, in Southeast Idaho on a farm that I've hunted a bunch. And, um, I happened to wander over by the old homestead that was there one day, and I was trying to think of something to write about because I was, I've been writing hunting stories, and I, I don't know, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of guys that do so well at writing hunting stories, and 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 I I liked it, but I, I wanted to do something a little more creative, and so, of course, why not write a full novel, right? Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, that'll be easy. <laughs> yeah, that'll be no no problem. Anyway, uh, so. I, I, I go in this, there's this old shack it was the original homestead on the place. And I, I opened the door, sort of hanging there and, and just kind of looked inside. I'd like to say I walked in, but I was, I was scared to, <laughs> and I lo- looked inside and I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. I wonder, you know, I wonder how long ago this had been abandoned. And anyway, that spawned this whole thought of this character who might've been the last guy that lived in this, uh, that's cool. you know, d- d- this broken down old shack. And, and, um, Anyway, it started from there, and I, I thought about it the rest of the day while I was hunting, and and the, a whole ride home, and 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 I started doing research. I, you know, I, I decided kind of what I wanted to do and how I wanted it to go, and and I mean, there was parts of it I didn't know. You know, you just kind of make up as you go along, and right. But that's that's how that's what inspired it, and um, and I wanted to I wanted to write something that that would bring that someone could enjoy, not just hunters and, and trial people and, and dog people would enjoy, but, but somebody who maybe just loves their, you know, their Cocker Spaniel or their, their, uh, uh, you know, their poodle or something. And they just want to read a book that, that's kind of heartwarming. So I tried to write it sort of like that. And, and I had some, some beta readers that were from like inner city, Los Angeles and stuff that, that, that were helpful in that regard. But anyway, um, it was, it was fun to write. It took three years. Wow. Three years. Yeah. How much of the, I, I love the, I love the, where the inspiration come from that kind of little tidbit, how much of the story, obviously you had a lot of work to do at that point, but how much did you really visualize from that, from that starting point? Like how much of the story was kind of formulated at that point? Well, I'd seen, I'd seen the movie, um, uh, the, the biscuit eater. Have you ever seen the, the movie, the biscuit eater, the Familiar original, it, but I don't know if I've seen it actually. The, I don't write that down. It's the 1939 or 1940 version, the original black and white movie. If you have, if you guys are bird dog people and you haven't seen this movie, it's, it's, it's super oh, yeah. cute. That's and super I, dated. It's a Disney movie, right? No, the Disney one is the remake and it, oh, they, okay, they, okay. It, it, that's okay. But the original one is the one to see the, okay. the it, I mean, it goes back, it's black and white. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's cool. Anyway, check it out. But I had seen that and I thought, you know, that was kind of a fun movie and a fun story. And so I wanted to write something about trials, but I needed to create some, some drama in the trials because trials, they're reasonably decent spectator sports, but you don't always know scores and things you don't know. So mm -hmm. I wanted to create some drama. So I sort of just invented my own. I took some artistic license and just invented my own, my own trial format. Um, and I tried to keep it close to, you know, to like horseback all age trials and, yeah. and, and, you know, and throw just a little bit of a drama in there. But anyway, uh, that's, so that, that kind of needed worked out and that probably worked out on my way home from, from Idaho that day. Um, the, you know, the, the love interests and the characters and all that, that took probably six months or something to, yeah. I started drawing character outlines and I had no idea how to write a book. Yeah. I'm, 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 yeah, you're going to write a book. You don't even know how to write a book. What are you doing? <laughs> so, I, but I did that. I, I made like a timeline what are, where I wanted the things to go. And then I, I, I started, and if I needed a character, I invented one. You know, mm -hmm. there's a couple of times when I needed a new character or something or, you know, somebody to come in and stir the pot. And, and I just did that. Anyway, it, it was it was really fun, and I'm glad it turned out as, as well as it did. Um, an interesting thing about about a book is you put that final period on the on the thing, and that's the most rewarding thing in the world. You, yeah, and you step away, and you go, "I did it." Yeah, and that's when I realized I hadn't done anything because I hadn't shared it, and that's when the real work started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so. Felt pretty momentous to finish the story, but you were you were just getting started. Yeah, at that point. right, right. And I probably I was probably honestly I was probably content to turn the page, start a new story. Mm. Um, I don't know that I felt pretty good about where I was and and what I'd done. And 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 my wife, she kind of pushed me, um, and she said, "Well, let's get publishing." And I said, "Man, I heard it's really hard. I said, Maybe I'll just self publish." And I didn't really know how to do that either. So um, we. She she put a little pressure on me, and we um, we did kind of divided and conquered. We found all the publishers that might be interested in that kind of story, and it's a real pain to to send out um, query letters and stuff mm -hmm. to to all these. Uh, you know, some want a synopsis of five hundred words. Some want you know twelve hundred. Some want a trying chapter, to stand out the in whole the crowd, book, right? And, yeah, and some want the whole book, and you've got to change the format every time you send it to a different mm -hmm. place. And if you send them the wrong stuff, they're insulted. You know, it, it's it's just hard. And anyway, much to my surprise, um, I got a couple bites, and um, you know, I signed with with Touchpoint Press is is who uh, published it, and um, and that worked out really good for a while. And they're they're having a little bit of trouble now, but um, hopefully, they're going to write the ship, and things are going to be good. Gotcha. So. Well, I probably should have done this right away, but give us uh, the, obviously we're not going to spoil anything here. I, I, I read it and, and loved it, but what, uh, give, give me the synopsis for those who may be interested of, in the story. So it's about a, a teenage boy in um, rural Southeast 1950s Idaho. And um, he doesn't have a lot going for him. He finds himself sort of orphaned on this, this old farm that's just beat up and, and just about wrecked. And he's trying to find a way to make a make his way in life, and he's depressed, and he's dealing with the loss of his mother, and a whole bunch of uh, really negative things. And um, he uh, serendipitously meets this English setter puppy that uh, becomes his buddy, and and in the process, he he meets a mentor from uh, from the big city who happens to be a very wealthy man, and this man sort of takes him under his wing and gives him a job and gives him. 
Um, you know, I, I, won't say, I won't say it gives him anything. It lets him earn his way in life. And, um, and uh, he happens to be a field trial guy who's interested in winning field trials. And so um, when, uh, when the, the main character, James, shows interest in this, he, uh, he starts uh, sort of taking him to field trials. And, and they become sort of partners in trying to accomplish the goal of winning this big field trial. Um, and along the way, he has some stumbles in love. And like a lot of us did when we were young, uh, he's a little more awkward than most of us probably were. Uh, maybe as awkward as some, I don't know. But he, he struggles a little bit with some with some, some girls and meets the wrong girls a few times. And anyway, it's hopefully it's a fun story about growing up in a different time um, than maybe we did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would uh, I would echo that. It, it was very, very much a lot of depth to it in, in, you know, I don't, cons- I definitely wouldn't consider myself a, a huge critic of, you know, I enjoy a good story. I think like anybody else, and I definitely enjoyed this one. Uh, but there was, there was feel good moments. There was heartbreak moments. I mean, it, it had it all and, mm-hmm. and it really, but you know, it's just one of those stories that you walked away from feeling, you know, on top of the world. Like it was just a, it's a, it's a fun, fun story. And, uh, I don't, I don't know how you did it from right out the, right out the gate with novel number one, but it, it was really cool. I have no idea how I pulled it off. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes sit here and I, I, you know, I'll walk past it. I've got one sitting on my bookshelf, and and I haven't actually read the book myself. I haven't opened it and read it yet. someday I'm going to, but I've read, of course, the files edited, you know, to to, to nauseam. Yeah, but yeah. but I've never actually opened the book and read it. But but I walk by and I go, man, I actually did that. So anyway, and there's another one coming. Um, it's coming very slowly. Um, it. I'm hoping it's better. Um, I really like this story. Um. There's there's some pretty hard hitting topics in this story that the guys like you and I will will definitely identify with, um, in you know conservation and urban sprawl and mm. and some of the things that are eating up our farmlands um, today and have been for the last probably forever. Um, are anyway, bird dogs in bird hunting as prominently featured in it? Yeah, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, it's 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 there's no field trials. Um, there's some reoccurring characters, so it is sort of like a sort of like a second book later. Cool. Um, and at least that's the way it's written right now. I mean, sure. Sure. I may decide to change it at some point, but right now it's written that way. Um, I just need to find time to write. That's the, yeah. the big, the big challenge. So. Yeah. Very anyway. cool. Well, well, I was, I'm pleased to hear that. Cause I was certainly going to ask you if there was maybe yeah. a, a number two in the works. Well, and I, I feel bad because there's a lot of people, you know, asking me all the time, when's that next book coming? And I'm like, sure. man, you know, I, I, I'm embarrassed that I haven't done more, but um, life sort of got in the way there for a minute. I'm, I'm just about ready to get after it again, though. Um, I, I've been uh, reading through it and sort of editing some of the earlier parts of it. And it's just a matter of just sitting down and putting it together. I mean, it's all worked out. It just needs to be written. So, yeah. yeah. But time, time's hard. Well, judging judging by the fact that you are working on number two, I think the answer to this is somewhat obvious. But I did want to ask you, when you set out to write the first book, A Millionaire's Dream, when you finished, I mean, you already touched on it was sort of a, you know, you, you were proud of, of your accomplishment, but did you feel like, like it was, it was the creative outlet that you thought it could be just coming up with the story and the characters? I mean, it had to be quite, quite freeing to sort of write a novel like that, where you could literally put anything down on paper, right? Yeah. And, and that's a really great question. And thanks for asking it. Um, I discovered a creative outlet in me. I didn't know I had. That's cool. I could go into this world and escape and write from, you know, the bottom of my guts with no judgment. And it was a very private thing to write this book. And I, um, I got, uh, you know, 
there, there's, there's points where you're writing something that's really, really hard hitting or really emotional. And, and, and as I'm writing, I'm feeling water dropping on my hands out of my face. Now I'm not crying, but there's some sort of emotional outlet that came from that. And, uh, I think it was very therapeutic for me in a lot of ways. Um, that character is in, well, I guess that character is in some ways me, but I'm nothing like, I was nothing like James as a teenager. I, you know, nothing. Um, but there is every single character is kind of a part of you and a part of your experiences and the people, you know, and you're sort of pulling those things together. And then in this very private thing that only you're seeing and only you feel, and it's, it's this world you've created. Um, and it, it almost feel, it almost felt like a violation on, on, uh, release date. Um, uh, a lady, Marcy Pollock was the first to read it. And she sent me, she, the thing came out. I can't remember what time she, she bought it right away and started reading the Kindle version like immediately. And she read it in like seven hours and she te- <laughs> messaged me right away. And I'm like, man, this took three years to write, you know? <laughs> and I, 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 yeah. And you, you're just walking all over my private thoughts here. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but yeah, it very, is very much a creative outlet. Thanks for asking that question. I, yeah. I haven't that's, thought of that for a while. That's, I mean, that's cool. And, and I guess, I mean, maybe that's one of the things that just kind of makes novels cool is that the, the author really is, you know, you're painting this picture, this whole world or universe that yeah. is from nothing. And we're relying on you to describe the characters and the situations. And, and that's why I mean that in, in, all sincerity, there was there was some depth there with these characters and the events that played out, and it was really cool. And now I got Rose there; she, she's in. The I back, love it. At back window, there, there's either a deer out there or my wife and my young son are in the backyards. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but great. I, uh, yeah. I I certainly commend you. I will say it again. I really really enjoyed it. I hope other people go out there and grab a copy of A Millionaire's Dream. I hope so too. And and thank you so much for having me on here, man. I really appreciate it. Where is where is the best place for somebody to go? As I mentioned, I read mine on Kindle. It's available from Amazon, obviously. Is that uh, the best place to get it? Where else? Um, yeah. So you can buy it from Amazon. That's fine. Um, if you buy it from my site, I'll be happy to sign it. Uh, my site's oh, brettwanacott.com. Yeah. Yeah. My site's brettwanacott.com. It's just a little site that's set up to sell that book and that's all it is. Um, I, I, I really enjoy uh, being able to connect with the reader in that way. If it's just a simple signature or it, you know, it, maybe I even know some of you, I don't know, but yeah. um, it, 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 I think it's nice to have a signed book um, and uh, hopefully you do too. So uh, it, it'll cost you just a little bit more because I can't compete with Amazon on shipping, but you know, if it's, if, if it's something that's interesting to you, please buy it. My shipping department, which consists of my wife, will take care of it right away. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, this was a blast, Brett. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us on the Birdshot podcast. Once again, I really enjoyed reading the story. I can't wait for number two. You have to keep me posted on that. If and when, no pressure on my end. I understand life is busy and we'll, uh, we'll get our hands on it or our eyeballs on it when we can, but you let me know. Yeah. Thanks again. And I promise this, it will get done. It may not be done tomorrow or the next day, but it will get done. So excellent. Um, thank you so much for reading it and enjoying it. Sounds good, man. You're, you're active on social media. Folks can follow you there, Brett Wanakot. I'll put links on there. You put a lot of stuff up. So absolutely. Both Facebook and Instagram. And I've been playing a little bit over on that new one. What's that new Instagram one? Um, uh, threads. Threads. I've been fooling around over there a little what's, bit. What's uh yeah. what's the verdict? I've I'm only I'm from afar, I'm seeing the headlines, all all kinds of users. Do I need to be there? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm on the fence still. I'm okay. still 
still kind of still more observing than participating, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's enough about that, Brett. It was great to get to know you. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to keep in touch. I wish you the best of luck this fall. Good luck to you and the setters. And thanks again for joining us on the Berkshire podcast. Have a great season. It's been great. Thanks buddy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Listen up, business owners and advertisers. Instead of hearing this right now, listeners of the Bird Shop Podcast could be learning more about your products, services, lodge, resort, outfitting operations, and more. As the founder and host of the Bird Shop Podcast, I offer a limited amount of direct advertising opportunity for businesses committed to delivering exceptional value and service to our loyal listeners. We are fast approaching our favorite time of year here on the Bird Shop Podcast, and there's no better time to educate listeners on what you and your business have to offer. To connect with me and explore advertising opportunities on the show, please email me at nick at birdshoppodcast.com. Thanks, and I look forward to hearing from you. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.